Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I am Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. We are a one-for-one charitable podcast. And for every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to a charity around the world. Have you ever been in that situation where you see someone, like a man and, and a woman or a young girl, and something just feels off. You have that weird sense that's like a a gut feeling and a red flag all at once. When I think about it, I have had these moments on many occasions, you know, walking past somebody on the street or at the airport. I even remember sitting at a stoplight and, and looking to the right of me at the car next to me. After the conversation I'm about to share with you, I will never think of these moments the same. Our guest is Rebecca Bender, a survivor of sex trafficking, and she painted a picture for me of what human trafficking really looks like. Not what we see in the movies, not what we think we know. Trafficking is actually all around us. She would say in almost all communities whether it's the men who are buying sex or the women and young girls who become the product. Today's interview is about sex, power, money, control, and what it means to be a young, vulnerable, and fragile girl. It's also about the science, the tactics, and the devastating effects of brainwashing. Here's today's interview with Rebecca Bender, a woman who survived, thrived, and will change the way our country thinks about human trafficking. Rebecca, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much for having me. I always like our guests to introduce themselves. How would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, My name's Rebecca Bender, and I'm a survivor of human trafficking. I'm also the CEO and founder of the Rebecca Bender Initiative, We equip America on how to identify human trafficking, and we empower survivors to thrive. Rebecca, what was the backdrop of your childhood? I grew up in a small uh, town in Southern Oregon. I was a kind of all-American small-town kid. I grew up skipping rocks on the river and taking a salt shaker out to the garden to pick a tomato. I was an only child, and so I had a lot of time with cousins and aunts and uncles and my parents, my dad worked at the local lumber mill and my mom taught aerobics on the side. So we were just kind of a blue collar, kind of all American family. And today we're going to talk about the six years that you were a victim of human trafficking. And, you know, one of our guests, it was actually our first episode of this year, asked a beautiful question and she asked people, where does your story begin? So, Well, it begins with your childhood. Where does your story begin of human trafficking? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think 
what really started my story, my parents had a really ugly divorce when I was about nine. And I can literally remember standing in a parking lot, having my parents pull on each of my arms because it was such a a volatile divorce. Things got really rough for me between about nine and 13. My mom went from being a stay-at-home mom to suddenly a single mom, working several jobs to make ends meet. She was a young woman wanting to try to rebuild her life and dated, but I just had you know, moments where I felt alone and unimportant and unwanted. My dad started drinking really heavy because of the divorce. He would forget to pick me up for visitation or we'd drive to a bar and I'd sit in the car for hours. So just there was a couple years while they were trying to re- rebuild their own lives. I don't fault them for that today. I know what that can feel like. Um, but as a little kid, you don't realize how deep-rooted those vulnerabilities are taking hold of your heart and creating some just negative thought patterns that that followed me through the next season. What was the thought pattern? What's happening in your mind, the narrative? Just really alone, really unwanted, unimportant, not seen. I was always a bubbly young kid and I wanted to be a part of things. I was the first to jump in the back of a pickup truck after a football game and hang out at the bonfire. And I just liked being a part of things. And so when I had those seasons of feeling unseen and unimportant and unwanted, it caused me to be even more a yes girl. And as I got older in my teenage years, I started you know, not really caring if my boundaries were crossed or pushed because at least I was a part and at least I was wanted and I was invited. And that was a very different feeling than than when I was little. That answers, you know, the, the question I had thought to ask you, but you just answered it is, you know, what were you longing for and, and what was the hold that you were trying to fill? Because I do think all of us have these voids and holes and we find ways to fill them often that are hurtful and unhealthy. So yeah, you answered that question before I asked it. So the literal story, if you will, of when those six years begin, where are you in your life? You know, I think what's so important about this issue of human trafficking is that we all picture this one kind of stereotypical story that we've all seen in movies, you know, some girl being kidnapped, pulled out by one leg while gripping at the carpet from under her bed, you know, brought overseas. We have these really Hollywood style scenes that we picture. And what I think is important to know is that as victims, we grew up in the same communities as all of you. And so we too are picturing those scenes. And when our situations aren't matching those scenes, there's not a lot of red flags going off for us because it doesn't always look like it does in the movies. And and that's exactly kind of with my story. I I was not kidnapped. I was not duct taped. I, for a long time, thought I was in domestic violence and that it would end as soon as I made back the money. And that's not, you know, generally what we see. And so victims go, they go misidentified by the public or their family or their friends, but they also self misidentify often for many years. I just think that's so important to make sure that people know because uh, it, it really can affect seeing trafficking in your own community. And what was the relationship, the abusive relationship with the man you just mentioned, if you can explain the details of that relationship? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I was accepted into a university and I'd been assigned my dorm room. I was very excited to get finally get out of my small town and see the world and go be a college girl. And that summer, I found out that I was pregnant. And I had to make a really tough decision at 17, but I, I chose to keep my daughter and I'm glad I did. She's an amazing young woman today doing incredible things. And she's really what kept me fighting when things did start to take a downward spiral. I ended up moving up to the college town after my friends had finished their freshman year. They got an apartment. There was an extra room. They invited me to come up and I thought, this is it. Finally, now I'll get out of there. And my daughter was probably six or seven months old by then. And and so I moved up and it just wasn't what I was expecting as an 18-year-old single mom trying to figure out school. You know, do I reapply for the university? Do I just go to the community college there? And during that season, I met a young man who just seemed to have all the answers to my problems. He he made great money. He had ambition. He talked about traveling. And he took a real interest in my daughter and created for me this, this scene that I think broken nine-year-old me always really wanted, uh, but that I really wanted for my little girl. And he dated me for six months, got to know my hopes and my dreams, And then he invited me to move in with him. And I thought that I was going to get married and things were going to be fine. But it ended up that he was not only a complete con artist, pretending to be someone he was not. It wasn't even his real age. It wasn't his real job. But he was a trafficker. And he had been creating this entire fraudulent portrayal at point of recruitment, which is now I know legally is a common actual tactic And his entire intent was to just lure me away to sell me. That was really hard. Yeah. And I get that. You explain it so well, wanting all of those things and a con man, seeing your desires and creating that illusion. When is the moment that he shows his true colors? When does the violence begin? And I guess, how is that transition for the first time he tells you, propositions you, forces you to go out and make money for him by having sex? It happened almost immediately. So after he invited me to move in with him, we moved to Las Vegas. He told me it was entertainment capital of the world. That's where his job was relocating him because of his profession in in the music industry, which seems believable to a young person. And his brother helped us move. It wasn't the first time I'd met his brother. I thought of it, it as a normal progression into a relationship where you meet family and they become your in-laws. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking this is a normal relationship. So his brother helped us move. We get there. And within 24 hours, he says, leave the baby with my brother. I want to show you out on the town. So I put on my best club gear. I was probably 19 by now. And I was excited to kind of see this big city and do all of these things that I'd only barely been introduced to. And instead, he drove me to a dead-end street, and um, he parked the car, and I can remember him pointing at a building. There was a door with a camera above it, and he said, I spent a lot of money to get you here. I put first and last on the apartment, filled the fridge with food, and that was money I was using for my job, and we need to get that money back. Everything was we. We need to get the money back. And I felt stupid. I felt naive. I thought, oh, I didn't realize you know, how much money this this all cost. And yeah, of course. And he said, well, that's an escort service. I need you to sign up. 
And I said, escort sounds like prostitution. They said, no, this is how it works in Vegas. It's just, this is how they book those dancers to rooms and just going to be like being in a bikini at the pool. And, and I, you know, I thought, well, he's in the industry. He must know better than I do, but I'm not that naive. I'm from a small town, but I was on the, you know, I'm still kind of a smart girl. And so I thought, ah, still escort sounds like prostitution. And that's when he slapped me across the face for the first time. And he said, you're going to go in that room and you're going to get my money back. And I can remember having these moments as a young in love girl being hit for the first time, all of these emotions. But then I can remember having this moment when I thought, I don't know where my baby is. I just, I don't know my address by heart. I just got here yesterday. I didn't write it down. And I just kept thinking, I want to believe him. I'm just going to get the money back. Maybe it'll just be dancing. And I just need to get home to my daughter and things will be better tomorrow. I just kept saying that to myself, like things will be better tomorrow. I didn't know that it was going to last years and years and years. I thought that as soon as I got the money back, that I felt so so close to my dream of having this happy family that I think I didn't want to admit that maybe here I am in this city, you know, Oregon to Vegas is not close. I'm all, you know, alone at 19. It's just so many things that were complexities played into this one blink of an eye decision. And I got out of the car and I complied out of fear and just out of hope that it would be what he said it was. And as you share, that would, you know, become the start of six years of being trafficked. You talk a lot about misconceptions when it comes to trafficking, which I want to get into in this interview. But I also read, you know, you talking about the buyer. So who who are these men and, and you know, what are they longing? What is their profile? And, you know, I read you say it's everything from slow dancing with an elderly man who lost his wife and he wants to sway in a room because he's lonely to life-threatening <laughs> abuse, that the range was wide. So can you explain... Who are these men? What is the profile or the range of profiles? It is such a range, like you said. And I think that's that's what's so important for people is to know what what level of gender-based violence this is really birthed out of. You know, this is an industry where the only people that really profit are the men. And is that a really fair, equitable dynamic when we're being used to fulfill someone else's fetishes or lusts or desires. And the not only physical harm that takes place on you, but the emotional and the and the mental health. When you are living in a constant state of fear that you don't know every time you knock on a hotel room door or you get in the car with a stranger, if they're going to hold you at knife point and rape you for hours, if this is going to be the day that you don't get to come home to your kids, if this is the day that you contract an STD, that constant state of fear is not actually healthy mentally for anybody. That's why you see increased rates of PTSD and and suicide in people involved in prostitution. You see them targeted, huge risks of homicide in an industry that targets people like I had been and people like me. And so it is anybody from your local dentist to, you know, people that are on drugs to celebrities to... I mean, it's it's anyone. It can be anyone and everyone. I think 
there's been a lot of research by a group called Demand Abolition that had a research report that shares the most average buyer is 35 to 55-year-old male with expendable income. So who is that in our communities when you think of that? Who's a 35 to 55-year-old male in your community that has expendable income right now? That who is potentially, you know, the one that's potentially buying buying sex. I mean, sex for sale is a huge industry in so many arenas. And I know so much of it is about control and power. And that was the case for you down to being told how to dress. What did the control and power piece look like in your life, in your day-to-day life? Well, during that nearly six years, I was traded and sold between three different traffickers. And each one used a variety of fear tactics. Uh, But the one I was with the longest, I'd been there three years. He tattooed his name on my the back of my neck. He did that to all the girls. We all had the same tattoo. He gave me 45 minutes to go grocery shopping. I can remember being at the grocery store and it was exactly at 45 minutes and I was walking out of the doors to my car and my phone rang and he said, where are you? And I said, I'm in the car. And he said, honk the horn, turn on the radio. And I wasn't right at my car. I was, I don't know, maybe 50 yards to my car. And so I started clicking the little beeper in hopes that he would hear the beeping. And he said, oh, so you're a lying bee, use the the B word. And I said, no, no, I'm at the car. And he said, I'm going to show you what liars get when you get home. And I that always stuck with me because I thought, I'm not safe ever or anywhere. I have to be home by a certain time. I'm just constantly watched and tested and followed. There would be times he randomly knew conversations I had had. I started to literally feel like my sanity was slipping away from me. I would check the mirrors in my car because I thought maybe he was watching. I, I started feeling like in addition to all of this horrible abuse, I mean, during the time with him, I, ha- I had my face broken in five different places. My palate cracked, my nose twice, my maxiofacials and turbinites had been impounded. He beat me on a regular basis. He would say to the other girls, this one has a spirit that won't be broken. And I used to be so ashamed of like, why... Why is it that I can't figure out how to comply, that I can't figure out how to obey the rules, how to get in shape and not physically, but like mentally, like do what he wants. And now that I'm doing the work that I get to do today, I'm thinking, you're damn right. I have a spirit that won't be broken. You tried, but you did not win with me. And I'm, that's why I do the work I do today is because I know the fear and the trauma and the abuse that can keep you uh, for far too long trapped, even mentally trapped. Well, all of that is heartbreaking. And I'm so sorry that you experienced that, especially being a young mom, because I imagine you were fearing for your daughter's life as well. Yeah, absolutely. All the time. Brainwashing, which is really what it is, because you know some people say, you know, you choose to stay. And that, I think, is a misconception that I hope you can share with our audience because I, I think it needs to be crystal clear. In fact, what is happening, you know, within the psychological and emotional experience? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's brainwashing is almost what we named the book actually, because it was, it is so much like that. The University of Northern Colorado even did a research report a couple of years ago that, that was able to prove that domestic human trafficking, trafficking right here in the U.S., fits every indicator of cult behavior. So in your little mini family, which is all the girls and the one trafficker, that that's like a mini cult. Brainwashing happens. It happens in, in radical religious groups. It happens in, in gangs. It happens in a variety of places we've seen brainwash take place. And what it does is it just replaces your ideologies with a new set of ideologies. It reinforces it through rewards for cooperation and it punishes you for non-cooperation. And punishments don't always have to be physical. Punishments can be isolation from your friends. I can remember one girl in our home, she gained a little bit of weight and he forced her to go to a brothel. He did not allow her to come home until she lost weight. Social ostracism for not obeying a rule, right? And so these continual sorts of behaviors and rules are reinforced. And you really just, for some reason, you do, you get really brainwashed, let alone the sleep deprivation, food deprivation. Could we physically leave? Some days, absolutely. Most days you could get in the car and go to the grocery store, but you'd have to tell him where you're going, when you're going to be back. And you're so mentally brainwashed that it takes a lot of fear to just run. And a lot of people would ask, you know, six years is a long time. Why didn't you just run? And my answer always is, I did. Why do you think I'm standing here today? I did run. Why didn't I run sooner? You know, I had multiple attempted escapes and I learned what to do better. Every attempt that didn't go well, every attempt that I got all the way to the airport and post 9-11, they won't sell you a plane ticket with cash. And I didn't know that and they wouldn't wouldn't sell me a ticket. You just kind of panic. I also think that people are asking from from pretty healthy adult brains and they forget that that person in the moment, you know, for me, I'm this young 20-something-year-old girl who has a daughter. I've been traumatized. I've been abused. I'm paranoid. I'm not thinking from a healthy adult brain. I'm thinking from a young person. Our brains don't even form till almost, what, 25 so I'm, I'm thinking from a 20-year-old's brain than let alone a traumatized one. And so it's just not as simple as people realize. Plus, intentionally designed by the trafficker, you form really strong relationships with the other people in the home. Much like soldiers at war, I had really strong bonds with the other women. And so when there were moments where I could run, I can remember feeling like, but what about her? How can I just leave her? Is she going to get in trouble if I don't come home today? What about her kid? It's not as easy as people think. Thank you for for that. I think it was very clear and important. Yeah, thanks. So I want to talk about the day you do leave and you change your life and you begin the, the road to where you are now, which is really incredible. But... Before that, I'm curious, what is your day-to-day life? What does a day look like? And when do you hit your rock bottom? A normal day while I'm being trafficked would be, you know, waking up at 11 in the afternoon because you've worked till two or three in the morning. And for me, it would be waking up and getting dressed and heading to the gym, running by his 
the business that was legal, but was laundering all of his money. So stopping in at the shop, making sure the books were running orders for any of the other women that I needed to run, following the rules during the day to basically be labor trafficked. (laughs) I would sometimes sew t-shirts in a manufacturing plant. I'd work in that for a little while until my daughter got out of school at three. And then I would get to pick her up from school and do her homework with her and make her a snack. And then I would cook dinner generally for the whole family, which means all the women and the other kids. And then... um, Sorry, I get so emotional talking about no, a normal of day. You do. <laughs> um, and then you'd get ready to call on, is what he would say. And so you'd get dressed and you'd call on to the escort service. You'd check your online ads, see if you have anyone that had booked an appointment for you. And by 9 p.m., I'd tuck my daughter in and I would leave. And I would hope that things would go okay, that people would not hurt you, that things would going to be all right, that you wouldn't go to jail, that you wouldn't be abused. And you would have to go call to call to call with that in mind, checking security, checking for risks, checking that you wouldn't be robbed by other traffickers. You were not allowed to have a sick day. You would have to have sex with strangers while you had the flu. You would not be able to take that time of the month off. You had to have have sex while menstruating. It didn't matter. You had to work every day. It wasn't an option or you would be beaten. Rebecca, and I want to make sure you're okay talking about all this and it isn't, you know, from a trauma standpoint. Yeah, totally. I just get um, emotional when I think of my daughter. She's always the one that gets me a little bit emotional just because I'm, you know, you love your kids so much and there's part of you that's, now that I'm a healthy adult, I'm sometimes shocked at my own choices too, right? Like, why would I? And when I finally was able to tell my daughter the truth, she was older, we'd already escaped, things were going well, and I was starting to go public with my story. She had the most profound response when I told her. She said, why would you stay from me? Why wouldn't you leave from me? (laughs) And that just broke me. I thought, I don't know. Like, I don't know why my brain wasn't working. All I can all I can attest to it is the brainwash. So it's very hard. Yeah, I can't even begin to fathom how hard it is to go back to that place, but how far you have become and that ultimately your daughter is the gift of giving you that moment when you were able to walk away from this life. Can you share when you decide to leave and why? Yeah, in 2006, the feds raided one of my traffickers' homes in Dallas, Texas. He had been laundering money through a pizza shop down there. And, you know, the see something, say something adage that we all say was very true. The neighbor was suspicious and reported us. And that began an investigation. When the raid took place, he was not there in Dallas. He was up in Vegas with us. And so eventually the feds came to Las Vegas on a bank fraud, racketeering, money laundering charge. And I grabbed my daughter and ran. I just thought that if he was going to go to prison for tax evasion, that I had a little bit of time to start over before he was out. He took a 13-month plea deal. I thought, I've got one year to figure this out. And I grabbed my daughter and and started over. And it was really, really hard. And I know... It's January 14th, 2021, 
And you left on New Year's Eve and you talk about watching the ball drop at the airport with your daughter, which is, you know, I think there's symbolism in that, that it was in fact New Year's Eve. So it was, you know, 13 years and 14 days to the day. It's crazy to think about that that's exactly how long. Yeah, 13 years and 14 days ago, I sat in the Las Vegas airport and I remember watching the ball drop in New York City with no real plan. Just knew I couldn't do that anymore. And so that was it. It was really hard. I, I left with nothing. And it began kind of the journey for the rest of my life of figuring out now what? What am I going to do to just try to be normal? What is the path to healing for you? The path to healing is much, much longer than people realize. And I, I think we're all still on journeys every day of healing from things um, that come up throughout our lifetime. But healing from that kind of trauma, I see a lot of success when survivors are able to get connected with specialized care, much like a physical doctor. You know, there's specialists, people that specialize in pediatrics or bones or cancer. And so that was a long road for me to figure out those terms, to figure out, you know, what language to even put to what I'd been through, to publicly admit it, to try to find what type of care I needed. That was a journey all in itself. And it was so empowering when I finally could say, I'm a survivor of human trafficking and I'm looking for an EMDR therapist, you know? Um, that was really great. My community came alongside me so much and helped and my family. And I'm really, really grateful. I know that when I talk to some survivors that that has not been their experience, that their family will deny what they've been through, that oftentimes the vulnerability was childhood abuse that led to their exploitation and families don't want to admit that. And that's why today we try to support survivors in any city that they live in to just be that support network that maybe they didn't get when they also came forward for help. I mean, could you even imagine telling yourself at that moment that you would be where you are today? No, I I could not even imagine. I mean, the young girl in me who was sleeping on family's couches with, with her nine-year-old in tow, trying to figure out what she was going to do with the rest of her life. I, re I just remember being really quite hopeless, thinking I was going to work at a minimum wage job the rest of my life, that I had no clue how to budget, how to live on a normal budget. It wasn't even normal. I mean, minimum wage is really still keeps single moms below poverty. So trying to figure out you know, how I was going to balance my schedule for work, plus trying to go to school so you eventually can get a better job than minimum wage, but also navigating your food stamps and any raise at your job decreases your food stamps by generally more than you get in your raise. So you're really taking a hit by getting a raise. The whole system is so just difficult. And, and I don't know that it's really designed for a lot of people to get off and get help. And so it was really hard, really hard to navigate and figure out and and it took a lot of years. It took a really long time to try to rebuild my life. So resilience, I think, is a, somewhat of a buzzword. I don't remember people talking about resilience and grit, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago. But it's clearly 
something you have, that spirit, right, that won't be broken, and the resiliency, and, you know, to get through that time in Las Vegas, but then the time after, as you're discussing. So what does that word mean to you? Resilience to me is about saying all of this can't have been for nothing, and then fighting and creating something even greater than before. You know, often when victims of sex trafficking and human trafficking speak, their identities are hidden. You have chosen to share your story, share your truth on stages around, you know, the country, in interviews, in this conversation, in so many different places. I guess, when did you decide that and how, I imagine there's a lot of shame You know, there's shame, almost everybody experiences shame, but certainly things where there's, you know, stigma and misconception. So how did you step out of the shame and when? You know, when we, when I first decided that I wanted to start a nonprofit to help people see that human trafficking was happening in every community across the country, I didn't know where telling my story would lead. I just knew that I wanted to share my story with people in hopes to help and I realized quickly that I wanted my narrative to have solutions and calls to action to not just leave somebody with a sob story. And so I turned my testimony into a law enforcement training. I wanted law enforcement to see investigative tools, how to identify potential where we, what we did with money. I wanted them to see the humanity behind people they were arresting for prostitution-related charges. I wanted to believe that if they knew that my daughter was being threatened at home, if I didn't make my quota, you know, would they have treated me different than they did? And I wanted to believe that. And so I think we've made a lot of progress in the issue of human trafficking. I think there's still a ton of work to be done in a lot of criminal justice reform settings. But for trafficking to be at the awareness level it's at today is because of people, survivors like me, stepping out, sounding the alarm, putting a face to the story. And, you know, year to date, we've now trained well over 100,000 law enforcement officers all over the world. We started having survivors reach out and ask us to mentor them on how to tell their story and how to create, you know, space for us to get involved in the movement. A lot of survivors want to be a part of this field to combat human trafficking. We want our stories to have been for a reason. And so when we started mentoring survivors, I created an online school. At the time I was finishing my master's online and I thought, you know, if I can get a master's online, I could mentor online. This was pre-COVID, so it was not as popular as it is today. And I wrote a 16-week curriculum I used the same technology my university used, and we launched Elevate Academy. We started with five women, and now we have over 820 survivors across the world in 12 countries and spanning 400 U.S. cities. So there are there are hundreds of survivors that are stepping up that want to tell people about this issue. Just know that wherever you live, there's probably a survivor of trafficking that's going through our class and is going to go, it's going to ripple out in your community to make a difference too. That is so beautiful to imagine 800 women standing together to change their lives and, you know, prevent and protect other women. That's really, really just, wow. 
I know. So cool. Clearly, you know, we we talked about this Hollywood idea or notion of of human trafficking and and how wrong and inaccurate that is. I heard you in an interview, you know, I want to just educate our audience on A, how prevalent it is today, and B, that people see it as this kind of like literal silo thing. And I know you talked about a raid at the Super Bowl that you were involved with, and there was cantinas. And I mean, all of this language, as you said, it's a... So explain to people so they understand in this country the range of what human trafficking looks like. Yes. I mean, human trafficking, exactly. People see it as this isolated incident. You know, traffic victims, they walk amongst us every day. Um, I tell people I could have stood in the grocery store line right next to you and you may not have noticed. My daughter may have gone to school with yours and, and you didn't notice. Not because no one's unaware, just because I think we're all looking for something that doesn't generally exist. Trafficking happens anywhere where you see the cross of sex for sale. So strip clubs, pornography, online ads, cam girls, open fans, prostitution, escorts, strip, you know, cantinas, which is sports bars generally, you know, there are people being sold there. Explain the cantina because that was like my jaw dropped. Yeah, cantina is is a sports bar where people will come into potentially do what anyone would do at a sports bar. But oftentimes, if it's a known cantina, then the bartender will ask if you want like a $5 beer or like a $50 beer. The $50 beer would give you like a raffle ticket and then they would direct you where the door is. I mean, people don't realize the extent to which this is hidden in plain sight right under our noses. I mean, look at illicit massage parlors. Um, They're everywhere and they may look like a normal reflexology or a normal massage in a in a strip mall, but if they are open very late hours, if they're distinctly positioned next to a gambling spot, that's probably not a real reflexology place. They're probably licensed as one, but inside we've gone into illicit massage parlors and they actually have hairspray bottles on the counters are empty and they're actually full with condoms. And so they're passing inspections without people realizing that they're a complete front for human trafficking. There's actually 25 different types of exploitation around the country. And cantinas and illicit massage are just two different types. But anywhere where there's an opportunity to make money, corruption will follow. And sex for sale is so rampant. We live in such a hypersexual culture that bad guys are finding ways to make money from putting their girls in strip clubs, putting them in a massage parlor, wherever wherever they can get them in. So our listeners understand you have been working with law enforcement because you have this incredible real world intellect, right? On what it is and and where you find it. And the Super Bowl raid story you told, I imagine it was because so many people were descending in one space. And I would also imagine so many men and drinking and all of that. Um, But you did talk about the range from the cantina to the, you know, dimly lit street to, you know, just again, in all these unexpected places. Yeah, we were at a cantina and then we went just a few miles over to a street that's called known as the track. That's usually where known prostitution takes place. And right there, there was a girl in a red thong and boots and no no bottoms on at all. And her jean jacket she had on said, make money, not friends. And um, people would pull over and she'd get in the car. And it's just so hard to see 
that not only is it out there in our open, but that the stigmas where people are seeing these women and thinking, I mean, I don't know what people are thinking because I've been that girl, but I can imagine when I see you clutch your purse and lock your door that you're thinking that prostitute or she's doing that for drugs or shame on her. And people have no clue that that girl's child could be being held home hostage at home and that she's required to bring in a certain quota or her and her kid could be hurt. There's a lot more that's really complex with systemic prostitution. How did people get there? What happened? How were you desensitized to this? We have to be really thoughtful around some of those if we're going to start seeing human trafficking instead of two different crimes where it's like, well, prostitution and girls that want to be there are in one camp, but trafficking happens in this whole other you know, part of town. That's not true. Buyers actually cannot tell in the same brothel if a girl is there by choice or if she's there by force. People can't tell. We all know. We know who's there. We know who's there with a trafficker. And we know who's there is what we would call a renegade. We know, but the public doesn't know. And so it's hidden amongst other industries. And that's why we have to be more thoughtful around services and prevention and, and you know, helping for exit services, as well as providing resources for those that are really high risk. Kids coming out of foster care, kids who've been desensitized to abuse, all of these factors get, you know, shaken up into this cocktail we call human trafficking. It's it's not just this one like seedy, isolated thing. Well, I think you said it so beautifully, which is the humanity of it. So if the law enforcement, and, and to your extent, sharing what you just shared, not only the law enforcement, but the man driving by, the woman driving, if you, if you flip that lens and that mindset, the impact that it could have as opposed to the judgment. Yeah. That's a big deal. I know that you're a person of faith and that it's played a immeasurable role and your journey of healing and getting you where you are today in your life. What does faith mean to you? You know, when I was being trafficked, um, I was not raised in a faith-based home. I had a praying grandma, but that was about the extent of my understanding of any varying faith tradition. And um, when I was being trafficked, I had one night where I was almost strangled to death. And I can very distinctly remember having kind of what people may describe as this like white light experience, right? Where it's my vision started going blurry. I started seeing yellow spots and I just thought, this is it. My baby's not going to have a mama. And I started kind of shaking. My hands started shaking. I just thought that was the feeling that accompanied death. And it was in that same moment that he let go of my neck and I was able to run out of the room but you know, a while later, I end up going into a, a woman's shelter that was a faith-based woman's shelter. There was nowhere else available. I tried to avoid it, but I, it was the only one with vacancy. And it was there I felt a similar shaky feeling in prayer. And I thought, if you're real, if there is, if there is a God out there that my grandma used to talk about, if there is a power greater than myself, you know, why did I live when others? died. And so that one encounter kind of set me on a spiritual pilgrimage to figure that question out a little and to be able to navigate, you know, what I wanted to do with this second chance that I felt I had to make a difference and hopefully 
impact other people that were still that were also trapped in that kind of life, but really make a difference in culture and change culture, change laws, change policy, change the way people saw an issue that was much more complex and nuanced than I think we realize. And then the movies definitely make it seem. So that's been our goal ever since. And I hope that we're making a difference. Well, I'm going to brag about you because I have met and interviewed hundreds of people at this point in my career. And I'm just, you know, wowed by you. And we talk about it so much about, you know, pain into purpose and meaning into mess and sort of all these, all these ways to distill that. But you're just incredible. And, you know, at this point, you have trained thousands of professionals. I know from FBI to Homeland Security and doctors, you, as you said, have the largest school for victims of, of human trafficking with the Elevate Academy. And you fostered a teenage girl, I know, who was coming out of sex trafficking. So your accomplishments and the impact you're making in the world based on your pain you know, the mess that you lived through is amazing. So I commend you for that. And that is where you are. It's hard for me to even say professionally because that's so personal to you, but your family and so that piece of you, that personal piece of you, paint a picture of where you are today with your family and personal life. Yes. So fun. I'm married now. I've been a married I've been married 11 years. My husband and I have three additional daughters. We have four daughters together. So I my kids are 7, 9, 11 and 21. It's quite a journey with four girls in the house. <laughs> but I I'm a, I'm an author. My book In Pursuit of Love came out last January, so it's going to have its one-year book birthday in just a few weeks. And yeah, CEO of my own nonprofit that has incredible staff and team that helps us do what we do. 60% of our staff are survivors themselves. We really like to employ and empower um, the women that come out of our program. And I'm just so grateful. I'm, I'm living in the same town. I just recently moved. And so I live in the same town as the other girl that I was trafficked with. Her name is also Rebecca. She goes by Becca Charleston. And her and I get to do a lot of things together to continue to spread awareness. And, and really, at the end of the day, I get to tuck my little girls in at night. And just, I'm so grateful. I never would have thought I'd I'd be able to get out, let alone <laughs> do anything with my life. And I'm really grateful to be to be used to make a difference. Um, used probably isn't the right word, but I'm I'm honored to be able to to be a part of this anti-trafficking work that really is mobilizing a nation for change. And you know, one thing that I love to tell people is sometimes people hear what I've been through and they see what I'm doing today and they're like, How did you do that? And I thought, and I just think you know what? You can do anything you put your mind to. Like, why not you? Everybody starts somewhere, everybody. And so why not you? You see that person owning that franchise? Go ask them how they did it. Why not you? Jump in and give it a shot. If it doesn't work, what do you have to lose? And if it goes great and you're so glad you made the best decision you ever made, then you'll be you'll live with no regrets. And so I just want to encourage anyone who also has things that they've been through or fear or shame or something that's stopping them from figuring out like, well, what am I going to do? Or I'm at this crossroads. Just jump for the stars, man. Just try it. (laughs) You'll live with no regrets. Everyone started somewhere. You can too. Well, you are, I mean, such a badass (laughs) (laughs) and uh, making 
you know, an impact. And it was, you know, truly a privilege to have this conversation and to meet you today. So thank you, Rebecca, for your time and your honesty and your work. And we like to end with a little thing called rapid fire. Okay. Which I just realized I had not written my rapid fire question. So I'm going to be rapid firing at you and you're going (laughs) to rapid fire back. I love it. Making it up, I guess. Favorite childhood cereal? Oh, I guess tricks. Which is horrible considering what I'm... Because you... Anyway, bad joke. Keep going. (laughs) Best way to spend a Friday night? Movie on the couch or a great TV show with a margarita. (laughs) First adjective that comes to mind when you think about homeschooling? Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Kill me. (laughs) Ditto. Um... All-time favorite movie? Gladiator. Greatest hope for your daughters? Uh, that they'll just, that they won't feel a glass ceiling, that they'll, they'll believe they can accomplish anything <laughs> and really try. Well, we have to end on that. I mean, that's perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. Where can we find you? Where can everyone listening learn about you, your work, your books? Let us know, social and anywhere else. Yeah, you can go to our website, RebeccaBender.org. You can get the book. You can find all the e-courses that we have for people that are wanting to get involved in the fight against human trafficking. A lot of tools there for those interested in advocacy. Um, Also, all the social buttons are at the bottom. So if you're on Instagram or Facebook, which is our two favorites, you'll find us there. Um, And then our our link out to our school, which is Elevate-Academy.org. You can also get to it right from our website as well. All right. We are going to link to all of that and more. Thank you again, Rebecca, and good luck with homeschooling. (laughs) I think it feels like we're all homeschooling in this season, right? That's maybe why I'm fed up with it, but... All right. Like I said, it was a privilege and thank you for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to be here. Today's interview supports the Rebecca Bender Initiative. And I don't need to tell you about the game-changing work they are doing in the world because no one explains it better than her and she just brought it to life in our conversation. I hope this interview inspired and educated you in the ways it did for me and that you will consider supporting Rebecca, whether a shout out on social media or a donation to her initiative. Thank you as always for listening and I will be back again next week. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All The Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.